Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com slash Changelog. Move fast and fix things like we do here at Changelog. Catch your errors before your users do with Rollbar. If you're not using Rollbar yet or you haven't tried it yet, they have a special offer for you. Go to Rollbar.com slash Changelog. Sign up and integrate Rollbar to get $100 to donate to open source projects via Open Collective. Once again, Rollbar.com slash Changelog. Hi everyone, Tim Smith here, senior producer at Changelog. We have a fantastic show for you today. K-Ball just got back from JSConf Hawaii and had the chance to do a live show with William Martins, Sean Wang, Lynn Clark, and Till Schneiderfight. K-Ball asked some tough questions about the future of JavaScript and web development. Enjoy. All right, hello JSConf Hawaii. Before we get started, I want to talk a little bit about how amazing this conference has been, right? I mean, he was just talking about Hawaii, but how about like the variety that we've seen on stage? We have seen Moana. We have seen natural hair. We have seen Tamagotchis. Uh, I mean, let's give it up for the organizers a little bit for putting this thing together, right? So before we begin, I'm K-Ball. I'm one of the hosts. I'm a regular on JS Party. If you want to find JS Party, go to any podcast app, search for JS Party, you'll find it. All right, so I am joined today with four amazing speakers. They spoke yesterday, but I'm gonna introduce them anyway. Uh, William spoke about TC39, the future of JavaScript. Sean spoke about Babel and some amazing things you can do with that with the language. I don't know if I even need to introduce you two, you're so famous. But we have Lynn and Till who both spoke about WebAssembly. And what we're gonna dig a little deeper on today is this idea of the future of JavaScript, of web development, where is this going? You know, how can we take all of these talks that happened independently and sort of try to weave a picture together of, of where this is going in the future? So. We'll just start, I, I prepared a few questions. If y'all get a burning need to ask questions, you can raise your hand and I'll probably call out to you, uh, but we've got plenty, so don't stress. Um, so I wanna start actually talking about the JavaScript language itself. Uh, William introduced us to some of the proposals that are there for advancing the language, and I noticed that there were a lot of operators involved you know, in the, uh, Pattern matching, there was a new arrow operator. It wasn't the fat arrow we're used to with arrow functions, it was the thin arrow. Uh, with the uh, piping, there was a pipeline operator. And I'm kind of wondering, I'm gonna throw this to William first, but any of the panelists, you're welcome to answer. Are we gonna run out of syntax and operators? Like, is there room for a Tamagotchi operator? Where are we going? <laughs> I think this is a good question for two, right? So, I think there are sort of two different uh, answers to this. Um, one is, we can in theory, invent an arbitrary amount of additional operators and make them work somehow. Um, just put two 
um, characters next to each other that currently would be invalid and say, this is a new operator. Um, and thin arrow is actually an example where we could have done that when we introduced the fat arrow. Um, there, uh, the committee was pretty close to also introducing a thin arrow variant that didn't capture this, the, 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 this value, um, but otherwise would have react, uh, operated exactly the same. And the reason this is not done was um, mental complexity budget. Um, and that is really what a lot of this is about, that an operator has to carry its weight. It has to um, be specialized in a way that allows people to um, use it as a, an efficient mental abstraction instead of just some weird characters on the page that make things unreadable. And if we didn't keep that in mind, then the language would be more and more just sort of this weird stuff on the page that nobody can quark. And so, yes, we will over time introduce new operators, but we have to be extremely careful about which ones and make sure that they are actually useful enough. That leads into kind of a question about the process of deciding what goes into this language. You know, uh, we talked about TC39 and the stage one that was going on there, but maybe can one of the panelists spell out the stages that things go through as they advance in the JavaScript language? Okay, I can try that one. Um, okay, we have like a, a five stage in Doro. Um, like that is the strong wall. It's like a, we have a conversation in the bar and we are kind of drunk and say, yeah, what if, what if we do this in JavaScript? Let's try like, and and you try to present this to, to the committee, and then if they and if you find a ch uh, champion and and this proposal, it's uh, try to solve a problem. Like, yeah, you you should shape the 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 uh, the, the problem first, and then if you have a, a champion uh, for championing this, and you you and the committee uh, decides that this is like uh, something that worth uh, more investigation, so they goes to the uh, stage one. So then they uh, try to do um, uh, a little bit more uh, research on that and uh, shape, like if it's uh, syntax, like shape the syntax or and the semantics of the this proposal, and then goes to the draft, uh, which is the stage two. So then they start to um, um, write the, the draft of the uh, of this specific specification, and then. Um, Sometimes they have some implementation bubble and 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 send to the to to the developers to try that out, and then after after they find some consensus on on syntax in semantics of the the proposal, they goes this proposal goes to the go stage three, which is the time that like they wait for some implementation in the browsers and. And I think like then you see this uh, implementation coming to the um, a night, uh, nightly uh, version of Firefox or uh, Chrome Canary and so on. And then uh, after uh, everything's done and they uh, find a consensus to send to uh, stage four, which is the last stage. And then they have a cohort, I think in March, right? And, and then and this goes to the next spec, which is in July. Lynn, you talked about similar feature advancement happening in WebAssembly. Is the process there similar, or how does the WebAssembly working group deal with this? There are a lot of similarities and a couple of differences. Um, 
So for WebAssembly, you do have also four stages um, that look pretty similar. Um, there is a difference in advancing um, between the stages, um, which is that with TC39, you need really full consensus that happens at a meeting. Um, individuals from different companies can object. Um, whereas with WebAssembly, um, it's more the different implementers Really, it's, what they do is technically they take a vote and people can say, I strongly disagree, I disagree, I'm neutral, I agree, strong agree. Um, in practice, um, really, as long as the engines as a whole all agree, things will advance. Um, so there are some, some technical differences, but it really is fairly similar. Nice. Digging into one of those proposals that William talked about, um, there's this concept of binary ASTs mm -hmm. and uh, essentially having a much easier to parse version of JavaScript. What's that going to do to the demand for WebAssembly, where one of at least the initial mm -hmm. uh, value propositions was, hey, this stuff can be compiled so fast that we don't need to worry about that initial startup phase? So um, I'd say that it's actually pretty useful to look at the different kinds of use cases that these two, that inspired work on these two. Um, so for WebAssembly, uh, a lot of the use cases were around desktop applications and games, at least that first inspired it. We're seeing a lot of other use cases now. But, um, and what needed to happen there was actually, uh, startup time is important, but that wasn't the critical thing there. It was execution, how fast the code is running rather than how fast it starts up. It was really, um, at the time, about bringing uh, new things to the web that weren't already on the web. Now we're seeing that you can actually speed up things that are on the web, like the parser that I mentioned that is used in Webpack and, and our dev tools, um, or the Gutenberg parser, which is 86 times faster. But um, that's really a different use case than taking something like Facebook or Gmail and trying to make it start up faster. Um, binary AST, is really specifically targeted at the problem of startup cost. Um, and so with binary AST, we take this process that's really complicated and manual today where you have to do um, all of these things to improve your startup times like code splitting, and we automate a lot of that um, to make it so that um, you don't have to think so much about how to design your system to optimize for startup cost. You can just automate this process of getting a, a quick startup. Yeah, just to, to put a bit more on top of that, like they are trying to, uh, it's different uh, problems, like um, for like binary AST is something that targets the cold start of a JavaScript application. So it tries to make the uh, compiler phase start faster and 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 WebAssembly is more about like runtime, so how fast your uh, how uh, performant your code could be. So it's and prim, uh, it's uh, different kind of things, and and they are uh, I think uh, as far as I, I, I know, like the community is not even sure if binary ST is something that needs to uh, proceed because, for example, uh, V8 has a different way to parse the the, the JavaScript, like they have like. Uh, they parse the JavaScript in, in a streamlined way. So, and and um, the POC they did so far is it was only in uh, Spider Monkey. 
So they, uh, they need to try to assess this, if this uh, solution is even true. It's a performance wing for the other browser vendors as well. We are in, in Firefox, we're working on proving this out. And I think it is right for other vendors to say, well, show us the numbers um, before we go and duplicate the effort here. And um, the good thing is, Bindery AST is a format where this, uh, or is, is a proposal where this is possible. If we were shipping a language feature and then at some point said, ah, no, we changed our mind and stopped shipping it, we would break code that depends on it. That's not the case with Binary AST. It's really much like um, a minification step where nobody would only ship Binary AST, at least for the foreseeable future. So if we at some point stop sending the header saying we understand Binary AST, then we'll just instead get a JS file um, and nothing breaks. So that's good. And I do want to say something more about the motivation here. I think it's really important to look at this holistically. We want the web to be a platform where you can ship um, or de deploy applications of all sizes to. And to make that work, we need to pull all the levers that we have access to. We can't just say, well, this seems kind of good enough, so let's, let's not continue working in this direction. We need to do what we can for startup performance in all kinds of ways. We need to optimize runtime performance using the right language for the job um, for the individual modules. And going forward, we'll eventually also want to look at similar things for the other parts of the platform, like HTML and CSS. Um, and stopping at some point because we feel like this is fast enough for what people are doing now is selling the platform short. This episode is brought to you by Gage. Gage is a free and open source test automation tool by ThoughtWorks with a goal of taking the pain out of test automation for acceptance tests. To help with this, Gage supports specifications and markdown, which are easy to read and easy to write. Reusable specifications to simplify your code, which makes refactoring easier and less code means less time maintaining your code. And finally, integration. Use Gage with your favorite tools and IDEs in the ecosystem of your choice like Selenium and Sahi Pro, CI and CD tools like GoCD, Jenkins, Travis, and IDE support for Visual Studio, VS Code, IntelliJ, and more. Head to gauge.org slash jsparty to learn more and give it a try. Once again, gauge.org slash jsparty. So in Sean's talk, you talked a lot about compile time optimizations. And I think uh, this is something that clearly lends itself well in the WebAssembly world. What you were talking about with uh, treating binary ESTs is essentially a minification or compile step. Uh, where do you all feel we are in the sort of build systems around web development? You know, it feels like we've come a long way in the last few years, but does that mean that we're at um, about as good as it's going to get, or we are at step one of ten, or you know, how far is this stuff going to go? Wow, it's uh, a very broad question. Um, I am far from an authority on this, <laughs> um, but I, th I think uh, I think we are definitely at the beginning of, of build system innovation. Um, in, in fact, like you know, a lot of these pieces were were cobbled together and, and invented separately, and, and that's why people complain that there's no integrated 
end-to-end uh, -end thing from, from you know, NPM install to Webpack to uh, Babel and, 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 and having conflicts between like, all, this, all these different parts of the system um, make uh, onboarding to web development difficult. Um, I think th there, is some there is some struggle against like, uh, it, you know, having such a complicated build system is against the original spirit of the web. You know, like you, you used to be able to just drop some JS on, onto HTML. And that's true, um, but at the same time, the way we use the web has also changed a lot. Um, and so our tools uh, should evolve um, accordingly. Um, and uh, it, there, should be, there should be more innovation, not less. I mean, uh, and, and like as much as, uh, you know, I, I talk about um, compiling to JavaScript, but um, I think that obviously uh, there's a huge case for compiling to, to WebAssembly. <laughs> well, I think that, as you point out, the, the use cases that we're doing web development for have changed. And I think in your talk yesterday on WebAssembly, you talked about taking this concept of the web platform and expanding it beyond what we traditionally think of as the web. How far do you think that goes? Is eventually every type of development using the web development model and, and platform? So in, in the talk yesterday, I made this um, sort of offhand um, joke about stealing your Bitcoin wallet, which of course is based on um, real world events. <laughs> and um, it's no joke. It's something that has actually happened, applications, um, an application that you trust, where you rightfully trust the author of that application still going behind your back and stealing your money, literally. Well, almost, it's blockchain. Um, <laughs> and this problem won't go away without us doing anything about it. And the way I see it, we can do something about it in two different ways. Either by locking everything down through authority, going through app stores and letting the um, apples of this world dictate what you can and cannot consume in terms of applications and media, or by going away from something that is otherwise incredibly helpful and um, increases the stability um, and product, uh, of, of applications and the productivity of developers, and that is code we use through platforms like NPM. Or for Rust, we have Quates.io, which is very similar. And um, it's not scalable to try to review the entire code there for um, the hundreds of thousands of packages published there um, all the time. And we see that it's not scalable because it, nobody is doing it. Nobody could possibly do it. And um, so we can give up on this code we use, or we can say, well, let's work on things such that you don't have to trust all of this code. And to do that, we need proper sandboxing. We need to be able to say, as long as the application can only run in this directory, say, I don't actually care about whether it tries to steal my Bitcoin wallet because it can't. I need, don't need to trust it in, in this regard. And for that, we need to bring a sandboxing model that is essentially similar to what the web provides to um, development outside the web in a way that still allows these applications to provide the value you want from them. And we are working on that. When I was tweeting about your talk, I had a, someone who does native development respond and say, hey, do I really want my applications running in a browser? Isn't that gonna be a little heavyweight? Isn't that gonna slow everything down? And will that give me the access that I need? How do we address 
those concerns from folks who are used to being able to essentially access everything yeah. and run at a bare metal level. So that, um, I'm glad you mentioned the access everything. He mentioned me in that tweet as well. And um, this idea of a developer accessing anything on your system, that is great for the developer. It's really not great for the user, um, <laughs> as Till was just talking about. Uh, it opens up, it opens you up to um, so many different security vulnerabilities. So it's not just um, the web that has locked down on these things. You're actually seeing the operating system start to lock down on these things as well. Um, Apple is actually starting to lock down on what their application developers can do. And I think that uh, as developers see better systems for providing this kind of um, ability, capabilities, but with a security around them, um, they'll start to accept it too because it protects them. If they're reusing code from other people, it protects their applications from the kinds of exploits that they could potentially be vulnerable to, which I think most above board developers uh, are in favor of, of not putting their user systems at risk. There's also actually a kind of funny um, part to this. Um, when I looked at this Twitter um, conversation yesterday, um, I then looked at the timeline of this person who had posed these questions. And just a few days ago, they had um, compared um, uh, iTunes and Apple Music um, and t complained about how badly it works and had compared it to Spotify and said, this is how an application should be done. It runs smoothly and it's really well done. And at the same time, they complained about how all these web apps need an entire um, browser around them. Well, Spotify turns out to be an Electron app that brings its own browser with it. <laughs> so turns out the web platform actually is maybe further ahead than they realize. Awesome. So coming back a little bit to the languages that we're using to build this out, um, you know, Lynn, you highlighted the need for easy and fast data exchange. Mm -hmm. And we saw yesterday some discussion of TypeScript. And I know there's a lot of type discussion in the JavaScript community right now. We also, one of the things that WebAssembly gives us is you know, the ability to use languages like Rust and other things that have these high-level guarantees. When we're talking back and forth between these different environments, is there a mechanism within WebAssembly for uh, translating those type guarantees? Currently, that is up to tooling. And the Rust to WebAssembly toolchain that we are working on actually produces TypeScript definition files for the WebAssembly modules so that you can work with them in a strongly typed way. And you have to. You have to pass in the right types and you um, have some, to have some kind of layer that converts what the WebAssembly um, module produces into something that you as a JavaScript developer can consume. And currently, all you have to interact with the um, WebAssembly module are numbers. Ints and floats are all that that boundary can understand. Going forward, that'll change. Lynn talked about the garbage collection um, uh, proposal for WebAssembly. And I'm actually the TC39 champion for the accompanying typed objects proposal, where we will have strongly typed JavaScript objects, where you don't only have the type of the object itself, but all the fields on that object are strongly typed and in a fixed location in memory so that they can be efficiently accessed both in WebAssembly and in JavaScript. 
but you will still want to have TypeScript definition files to see what that structure is and to have your editor give you hints about how to interact with that object. So that won't go away and I actually think TypeScript definition files are the right way to approach that. There, there's some, uh, so I'm not too clear about this, but there's some discussion about the, the, the soundness of, like the soundness of a type system. Um, and I'm told that uh, TypeScript uh, isn't, well, it, it, it's not sound by default. Um, and that could be a hurdle. Um, I don't fully, like, is, is that uh, something that y'all consider um, in terms of your discussions? So the parts of the type system that we need for this are the, about the most trivial, basic, yeah. basic okay. ones, and um, that part is sound. Um, there's so actually a subset. Of yes, it's, a, it's absolutely a, a small, tiny That's subset. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Um, there is something interesting for the TypeScript team to consider going forward. Once we add garbage collection support to WebAssembly, they could actually go and compile parts of your TypeScript to WebAssembly to make it run fast. Um, but because the TypeScript uh, type system is unsound and because even without that it doesn't make sense to compile all code to, Java, uh, to, to WebAssembly instead of JavaScript, they could do it on a per function level. And if all engines have these fast calls that Lynn talked about yesterday and actually published a blog post about a few months ago, then itself doesn't matter which um, a part of the system a function is implemented in and the TypeScript compiler could really very fine grained decide Back and forth. Back WebAssembly is good for this, JavaScript is good for this, let's optimize all the things. I want to mention that there are um, two uh, experiments done on JavaScript to compile into WebAssembly. One is WALT, the W-A-L-T, which is kind of, uh, uh, you write a ja JavaScript-ish language that compiles down to WebAssembly. And there is another one called AssemblyScript, script, which is a uh, subset of TypeScript that compiles down to the WebAssembly. So, yeah, I'm interested in see how they uh, they do this and how this can work out. Like maybe this could be a good um, starting point for writing JavaScript and see how this goes like back and forth from WebAssembly. This episode of JS Party is brought to you by OneMonth.com, one of the best places to learn how to code in just one month. Their courses have helped over 60,000 students go from knowing zero about coding to building programs and languages like JavaScript, Python, and Ruby. OneMonth.com graduates have gone on to get jobs at awesome startups like Airbnb, Instagram, and Spotify. Their courses are easy to follow with step-by-step -step video tutorials, instructor-led with weekly assignments reviewed by your instructor, and results-driven with each student graduating the course with a portfolio of projects to show prospective employers as well as a certificate of completion. If you're interested in taking your career to the next level, head to onemonth.com slash jsparty and get 10% off any coding course. Once again, that's onemonth.com slash jsparty to get 10% off any coding course. A big thank you to onemonth.com for supporting JS Party and online education. All of this discussion about the many-fold possibilities here reminded me of a, an ongoing conversation that, that folks are having about how we preserve the on-ramps 
to web development. You know, it used to be that you just get started, you do a little bit of HTML, you can do your CSS and JavaScript right there, and you're already in, and it's uh, straightforward and easy. And now we're getting into this polyglot language world, we're getting into complex build chains, we're getting into complex frameworks. Um, Lynn, I know you do a lot of thinking about how to explain code concepts to people. Um, I know that uh, this is a surprised question because it just came up now. I didn't prep you on this, but um, do you have thoughts on how we make, keep making this accessible to folks? That is a question that has come up um, a, a number of times because people are worried um, that when you introduce something like WebAssembly, does everyone then have to learn WebAssembly in order to be a web developer? And uh, I think that the answer is no. Um, I think that we can actually, all of the web developers can benefit from uh, WebAssembly without ever having to learn it. If we have people like the React core developers um, re-implementing core parts of React, then people who are using it won't actually have to know anything about WebAssembly. They'll just see that the you know, DOM diffing algorithm is going faster um, because the APIs that are on top of it will stay the same. Um, and so I think that we can provide kind of this ladder, basically add a, a, another few rungs to the ladder that you don't actually need to climb. If you want to, you can climb those extra rungs and learn how to do WebAssembly development, but that you don't need to to have the same level of proficiency that you do today and actually benefit from WebAssembly without having to learn it. Um, yeah, I, I, I have thoughts. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I agree. I think um, as we, prof like, this industry is still super young. Um, you know, you don't, uh, and, and as we professionalize and grow deeper, um, we're, it's the, the, the learning curve is going to steepen. Um, and, um, like, I, that's, not an, that's not an argument to stop development, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and I think it's an argument for uh, more uh, people at every level, particularly intermediate, to, to, um, to, to, do, to produce content, to, to teach each other. Um, I'm a big proponent of learning in public. Um, what, you know, whatever you just learned, uh, you are the world's most recent expert at, um, even though uh, you may be... Uh, you may not have like 100% of the knowledge or you may be, may, may be incomplete and missing out some of the history of, of something, but um, you are best place to explain to other beginners as well because you're, you have the beginner's mind and that's something that experts don't. Um, so I think that we should have more of that. Awesome. I think we're getting close to where we're gonna have to wrap up for the next speakers to come in, but I wanna go around potentially to each of our panelists and ask you for a quick hit you know, what is one of the things that you are most excited about coming in the future of web development? And that can be JavaScript specific, that can be WebAssembly specific, that can be kind of global big picture of where the platform is going, whatever layer you want to hit it at, and in whatever order, because I, once again, I didn't prep you on this, sorry, throwing you a few curveballs. Um, but what is something that gets you really excited about the future of web development? Because, I mean, from where I'm sitting, we're where it's at. Like, this is amazing. The stuff going on in this industry is phenomenal. And, you know, this is an exciting time to be alive. I personally am very excited about um, how far the, um, the web as a platform is going out of just for the web. For example, now uh, you can create a PWA and install it on your Windows machine. So I'm very excited about that because, like, as a web developer, uh, I would I, I'd like to do something more than just like websites. So yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. So I, I, I do a lot of uh, 
I spent a lot of my time in the React world ecosystem, I guess. Um, and uh, so concurrent React is kind of like the next thing that's that's being released by the by the React team, and it seems to be like you think that we're kind of done with like rendering thing rendering like lists of items on a page, uh, but there's so many nuances and and, and ways to uh, declaratively make. Uh, uh, you know, user declare user interfaces better, um, and uh, I, you know, I'm very much looking forward to the release of that over the next year. Um, I think that there are there are a bunch of things that I'm excited about. Um, I talked about a bunch of them in, in the talk yesterday, but I think the thing I'm most excited for is um, WebAssembly's integration with the garbage collector in the browser, because I think that that opens the door to so many different use cases where we use JavaScript and WebAssembly together, and where we use WebAssembly for the parts of an app that it really makes sense for and, and speed up a whole bunch of these apps. I'm excited about tearing down barriers between the web and all other platforms um, in both directions. So currently, if you want to have, um, or in the past, really, we, this is, has sort of changed now. In the past, if you wanted to have a, an application available on uh, desktop systems and Android and um, iOS and also the web, you built one portable application core for all these other platforms and then individual user interfaces for all of them. And then you build the web ver version, completely independent from all the rest. Um, or you had to choose to not have that or not have the other ones. And we are changing that, where the web platform can be one of the others, where you have a portable core and you build a web-specific user interface using web technologies. That's the one direction. The other direction is um, bringing WebAssembly um, to other use cases in similar ways to how Node brought JavaScript to other use cases, and to the degree that web developers get more comfortable with using WebAssembly, and not all of them have to, of course, um, but those that do, um, we open new worlds for them. We open the ability to go into tiny niches um, where uh, JavaScript would not be the right language and um, apply their abilities there and really blurring the lines between these very uh, different platforms. That's what I'm really excited about. All right. So as we wrap up, I want to get a hand for all of our panelists here. They're pretty amazing, yeah? I mean, I don't know how I got so lucky to get to pick the brains of these types of folks, but it's, it's a pretty amazing thing. And if you like hearing from folks like this every week, take out your phone right now, look up JS Party. You can listen on the web if you really don't want to subscribe. You can listen wherever you want. Um, and we bring content from conferences. We have regular guests. We've had you know, folks like John Rizek on the show. We've had folks, you know, just incredible. Uh, stuff and you know I, I listen to every episode not just because I'm on the show a lot of times I'm not on the show and I just I'm like all right I gotta hear what they said that's amazing um, so check it out thank you all for coming thank you all right thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com slash community. 
And do us a favor, share this show with a friend. We also have a podcast, go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things right here at ChangeLog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. We're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers. Head to Leno.com slash ChangeLog. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at ChangeLog.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Practical AI is a show hosted by Daniel Whiteneck and Chris Benson about making artificial intelligence practical, productive, and accessible to everyone. You'll hear interviews with AI influencers and practitioners, and they'll keep you up to date with the latest news and learning resources so you can cut through all the hype. As you were at the uh, Thanksgiving table with your your friends and family, were you talking about the fear of AI? Well, I I wasn't at the Thanksgiving table because my wife has forbidden me from doing so. Um, (laughs) It's it's off limits for for me, lest I drive her insane because I I never stop. New episodes of Practical AI premiere every Monday. Find the show at changelog.com slash practical AI or wherever you listen to podcasts.